Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. I'm calming down finally a bit. I cannot fucking believe how gorgeous this drive is. Driving through that canyon is just really something else. Um, And then popping out to these mountains, I just want to say, you have done very well for yourself. Um, I am just full of magic right now. And um, I'm hoping that my have a lot of kerpow in me right now. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ is how I feel. Uh, I just have so much swirling around inside of me and I hope that I just maybe chill out a little bit before I get to you. But, wow. Um, God, these mountains. <laughs> you were one lucky bitch, but it's not luck i mean you chose this and it's just like oh wow okay anyway i'll see you soon Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I'm your host. That sounds so weird. I'm your host, Anya. I don't really ever say that. I've been saying this is Anya occasionally on the episodes, but I feel so familiar with you guys. It feels weird to like reintroduce myself. And plus, I do that in the introduction. So anyway, all that to say, thank you for joining me here for another episode of the show. What you just heard was my friend Autumn, my dear, dear friend Autumn, uh, with a song. I always forget to tell you guys what the song is playing behind people talking when I do that. Um, But just FYI, if you want to get access to every single song that I've ever played on the podcast, I do have a Spotify playlist. It's called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. And if you type that into Spotify, you'll probably find the playlist and the podcast but you'll know it's the playlist, one, because it says playlist, but also because there's a little globe emoji next to it. So anyway, that song uh, was called I Can't Sleep by Oliver Tank, and that was a message that my friend Autumn left for me while she was driving to come see me a couple weeks ago. 
And I wanted to play it because it um, aligned with what I wanted to talk about in my introduction today in terms of, and not just my introduction, honestly, this relates very much to the conversation I had with Jenny O'Dell, which you will hear in a bit. Um, And it's something I've talked about on the podcast before, but trying to figure out how to find our way between sort of or finding our flow, right? I kind of hate that word. It's super overused. Um, but I think a lot of people don't understand what flow actually is. Um, and it's interesting because Jenny's book and this podcast is called How to Do Nothing. Um, but in fact, we're not actually talking about how to do absolutely nothing. We're actually talking about how to do a lot, get a lot, attract a lot, receive a lot, by doing not that much. And actually by doing not that much, that's how we accomplish things. So I'm going to break all that down for you. Um, But first I want to cover a few important housekeeping notes. Uh, So there are officially, I believe, seven remaining spots in the March Lunar Circle. For those who don't know, I have entered back into the world of astrology, at least in a professional sense. If you've been following the podcast for a while, you know that I did an apprenticeship uh, several years ago. I was doing readings quite a bit for people that followed me on social media, people that listened to the podcast, and I took a step back. Um, I stopped doing that. I really I had a complex experience with spirituality, which you can hear all about in last week's solo episode. Um, but I, t- I decided to take a step back from it and just sort of reevaluate how I wanted to integrate it into my life and whether or not I wanted to integrate it into my professional life. And I landed at the point where I do want it to be integrated into both of those things. And I would love to share with you what I've learned about astrology and really be able to impart the ways that I use astrology, which are, I think, very vastly different from certainly from pop astrologers, but um, even in terms of other astrologers that are out there. For me, it's really about giving all of you the tools. I think readings are great. I think they're important. It's sort of like a version of therapy. But if you have the tools, you know, an astrologer is just going to look at your chart and tell you their interpretation of it. But you don't actually know where they're getting that information from. You don't know how to compare what they're saying to what someone else said about your Mars placement or what you feel about your Mars placement. So I think in addition to readings, it's really important if you want to uh, learn more about yourself and if you want to open yourself up to sort of experiencing the world in an archetypal way, the world, you, people you're in relationships with, etc., that really the best thing is to at least have a baseline understanding of astrology, understand how to look at a chart and read it, know what the symbols are, and be able to begin to start to interpret them. So that's what I really wanted to do. So I I decided to start something called the Lunar Circle, where we're going to gather 17 of us. We're in the middle of the February Lunar Circle now. We're about halfway through. And gather 17 of us and basically follow the lunar cycle over the course of one month over the course of one cycle. And while that happens, we'll sort of look at what the new moon is, what it means, how it relates to your charts individually, and then we'll use the moon as a guide throughout the month to learn about your charts. So over the course of the month, the moon moves through the entire zodiac. That means the moon also moves through uh, your entire natal chart, sign by sign, house by house, planet by planet. So as the moon touches on each of these different points of our chart, 
We'll be learning about them together. I teach about each of the signs in class for the ones that the moon's about to transit um, over the next week until we meet next. And we sort of do a little puzzle and play a little game of Clue in order to figure out, okay, what does it mean to have Mercury in Aries in the fourth? And there's a WhatsApp group that we have um, so we can share thoughts and ask questions when we're not meeting. I've created 12 Spotify playlists uh, for each sign that is going to be, that is being curated by all of the participants in the lunar cycle, including myself. And those same playlists will be passed down for each lunar cycle. So if you enroll in the March cycle, you'll get all the songs that were already um, added in February, um, plus you'll get to add your own. And then those will continue. I'm going to keep those as collaborative for any of these that I teach in the future. Um, Although mentioning that, I probably will not be teaching the Lunar Circle again until at least October, if I decide to do it again. Um, This was a little bit of an experiment for me. It's turned out very well, but I imagine when and if I bring it back that I will likely restructure it a bit, um, change things up, the price might increase. So if you really want to learn about astrology now, you want to learn about your chart and you want to learn from me, um, now's the time. So in order to sign up, go to anyakotz.com slash lunar circle. All of the details are there in terms of what the course is, when we'll be meeting. There are six Zoom live Zoom sessions that are about two to three hours each, um, and then lots of stuff that you're doing on your own as well. Um, and then there's an enrollment form to sign up. So we begin March 12th. Uh, there's 17 people total and we've got, um, seven spots left, as I mentioned. So there are 10 people inside. Um, so definitely sign up for that. If you are interested along those same lines, if you want to participate in the podcast, meet other people in the community, but astrology isn't necessarily your thing, uh, go to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. There are three levels, which you can sign up for each a different financial investment, but all quite low. Um, And tons and tons of perks. I feel like I might have too many perks at this time for all of you. Um, But those include, we just launched a Discord server, which is super fucking cool. For those who don't know what Discord is, it's basically like a sort of like a messaging board, a message board community type thing. I'm only opening it for patrons, so it's going to be kept rather intimate. It'll be a bit larger than the WhatsApp group chats, um, which I still have. The fifth one still has spots in it, but that is the last WhatsApp group chat that I'm going to be setting up. So if you would like to become a patron and be in one of those WhatsApp group chats, now's the time to sign up. Um, But in addition to the WhatsApp group chats and really what I'm going to be doing to phase out the WhatsApp group chats is the Discord server. And so this will have everyone from all the different uh, WhatsApp group chats and everyone else who signs up at the the Discord level, which is the $10 a month level. And within Discord itself, there's a general discussion, but I've also created all these different subcategories. So there's astrology, food, regenerative agriculture, sex and relationships, which is getting pretty steamy already. Um, Lots of different topics. So you can kind of, yes, communicate with the entire community, but if you really have um, a specific question or a specific interest or want to connect around a specific theme, you can do that in the Discord server. Um, In addition to that perk for Patreon, we have workshops that are taught by myself and former patrons. There's two already uploaded, including the three-hour Astrology 101 workshop that I taught. Um, And I have a couple more scheduled that are going to be taught by patrons. Um, One's about creativity and the other is going to be a breathwork um, workshop. 
And there's a contact list for everyone to input their contact information. If you're going on a trip and you want to meet people along the way, you can look at that contact list and figure it out. There's also a local meetups um, subcategory on Discord. And what else is there? Oh, our book club. Our book club just announced the March book club. We are going to be reading Existential Kink in March and then meeting live via Zoom at the end of the month to discuss if you would like to take part in that. Patreon is the place. There's also stickers and t-shirts and, um, oh, lots more playlists than just the podcast playlist that I keep private just for patrons. So I am probably forgetting so many perks because there are so many of them. But to get the lowdown on what all of those are, go to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Before I continue, I want to play you a little something that one of my patrons sent into one of the WhatsApp group chats that he belongs to. His name is Axel, and he's a musician, and he's actually in my first Lunar Circle. But he sent this to the group the other day talking about how he just moved. He'd been updating all of us on um, the transitions in his life, and he just moved into this new place and did a bunch of work on the new place and recorded... Uh, this little um, guitar piece in his home and sent it to all of us. And I just wanted to play it because I feel like it was a really good example of like the intimacy that we get to create in these WhatsApp groups and in the Discord server amongst this community. Obviously, it's fucking amazing just that you guys are out there and get to listen to me talk and know that there are other people like you. But my number, number one goal is to connect all of you in a in a really legitimately intimate way like not just a name on a screen but I want you guys to get to know each other I want you guys to support each other and become real friends when you know we can see each other again um so Axel sent this in and I just wanted to play it um to honor him to honor this community and to honor all of you and share it with you and then I'll be back Thank you, Axel, for sending that to me. If anyone else who listens to the podcast plays music and wants to send it to me, 
just to listen to or play it on the podcast, I welcome that. I always welcome you guys reaching out to me. Uh, there's a contact form on my website, or you can just email me on yakots at gmail.com. Also, if you have music that you didn't write, but that you think I might like, send it to me. I love sharing music. That's why I have like 10 different playlists that I'm offering to patrons. I think after like a year, I will um, open up those playlists to everyone, but just keep them patrons only for the, for the first year that they exist. Um, so that means I think I created the first playlists for patrons, lots of peas, uh, about a year ago. So some of those will be coming up, but if you want to get them first, Patreon is the place. Um, so before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to talk about something that I have spoken about before, but that I think about constantly and deserves to be reiterated and rethought about over and over again. Um, and it definitely relates to the conversation with Jenny that you're about to hear. And, um, also what my friend Autumn said in her message there at the very end about how lucky I was, um, but that it wasn't necessarily luck that I chose this. And I didn't ever, ever think about flow in my life prior to maybe four years ago. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what it was. Um, I was a control freak. I was had an extremely anxious personality. Of course, this was all like I didn't know. <laughs> it's amazing to me to think at what a high level of stress and anxiety I was operating on for so long, and I didn't even know. Like I remember talking to naturopathic doctors when I was like super unhealthy and just like my body was crumbling and being like, but I don't know what you mean. Like, I, I know I just got a divorce and, like, moved out of my house and I'm struggling from, like, major illness, but I should be fine. Like, other people are fine. Why am I stressed? She's like, dude, you have no idea. Um, that's a lot of stress and you should honor that and you should honor your body through this process. So that was a lesson I needed to learn. Um, but the point is that I sort of maneuvered through the world in a way that was like, how can I control everything? How can I prevent surprises? How can I prevent heartbreak? How can I prevent anything that I don't already know? I've traced this control, the wanting to know everything and prevent things to multiple aspects of my childhood, which allowed me to explore this a bit further. Um, but it was a big deal. And it was a lot for me to learn how to let things go and not only just to let things go, but to watch how once I let things go, that actually that was the way to attract people, things, and really anything I wanted in my life. And I know we talk about this and everyone, you know, especially in our psychology obsessed millennial generation, we talk a lot about, um, letting go and flow and manifestation and what all of that means but I wanted to point out one key piece of that that I think is often missing or that because we're so smart, us millennials, um, that we can basically use anything. We can find anything out there, any sort of like positive bit of advice in the world and use it to our disadvantage. Um, and I think one way that we do that is when we consider flow and we consider letting go and control. So what I mean by that is I see a lot of people talking about the patriarchy and capitalism and how there's this constant pull on us to produce and to consume. 
and how that's very unhealthy, that we need to prioritize rest, we need to prioritize self-care, and that actually through rest and self-care, through kind of opting out, through doing something like just going through on a walk in nature, that that is actually how we attract things. We don't run out into the world and try to get everything as fast as we can and work harder and harder and harder, that we actually take a step back, honor ourselves, and that that's how we attract what we want in our life. And I think that's always true, but like most things I talk about, I don't think it's the full picture. And the reason I don't think it's the full picture is because I've seen a lot of people take that concept and basically use it as an excuse to be lazy, right? So if you're someone like me who goes, 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 controls, 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 consumes, produces, like your creativity is very high, your motivation is very high, then you probably need more lessons as far as letting go. But you could be the person who actually can't get started. Maybe you're the type of person that um, you have more of a depressive personality or you are more lazy than you are overcompensating um, and you tend to be slower or you tend to be afraid of your potential and so you don't actually go out into the world and take what you want or reach for what you want or even accept what you want when it's put right in front of you. So I see a lot of people taking these concepts about capitalism and patriarchal nonsense and using it as an excuse to like not do anything, you know, like, well, I don't need to go out into the world. I don't need to have a purpose. I don't like why, like, that's just what capitalism tells me. And there's some truth to that. But I think if you can look at your life and see like that not much has happened or that opportunities have passed you by or that you're super indecisive about where you want to go and what you want to do and it's the same shit's happening day after day, then maybe those lessons about letting go of control aren't actually the best for you. <laughs> maybe your lessons have to do with taking more control, actually, um, taking more action. And I think we need to be self-aware enough or at least work to be self-aware enough to understand like how to use these lessons these things that people post online the things that we talk about you know we're all different people coming from vastly different psychological makeups and histories and we all maneuver through the world in unique ways and so I do agree that as a general rule capitalism has allowed us only to be valuable if we produce and consume, but that doesn't necessarily mean that like that's what's affecting your individual life the most. So when I, when I say maybe you're the type of person that actually does need to go out in the world and do shit, I don't mean then succumb to the capitalist mindset that you're not worth anything unless you're doing things, but it's just about approaching everything with some degree of discernment and some degree of self-awareness. Um, and knowing how to integrate those lessons into your individual lives and your individual circumstances. And so the way that I've sort of tried to describe flow, or really the way one manifests things, actually, I'll tell a story that I, that I've, I know I've told, but probably not for quite a long time. Um, I had this really beautiful moment in therapy, um, I was actually very, I loved my therapist. I went to see this therapist th like literally three times a week for a year or more several years ago. And she was wonderful. If anyone lives in LA, 
and wants a bomb therapist. Actually, I think she's probably doing remote therapy now as well. Um, but if anyone wants a therapy recommendation, I highly recommend my therapist. But I was always very worried because at the same time that I sort of started seeing her, I started developing a, a spiritual practice and like a spiritual sense of the world and really saw magic all around me and felt a little bit self-conscious bringing that into the realm of my therapy because I thought like, oh, she's going to be super you know, pragmatic and like more scientific and more intellectual and more psychological and less like, oh, wow, look at all the magic in your life. Um, But because I wanted to use this therapist and my therapy in general for the first time in a really honest and vulnerable way, that meant that I had to say things in front of her that I thought she might object to. I thought it might repeat relationship structures and dynamics that I'd had in the past. But of course, it didn't. And that was the whole point of therapy. Like your therapist is supposed to model for you the way a relationship could work, the ways that it doesn't have to repeat the patterns that you're used to. Anyway, I digress. So I decided to come into therapy this one day and tell her this story because I I had been really struggling for a few months. I was living with my mom. My health was deteriorating. I had like really severe acne that appeared basically overnight Um, and I was going through a lot of difficulty with my mother and living with her. And I knew that I had to get my own place, but that was really devastating because when I got divorced, I actually expected I'd be able to keep my house that my, uh, ex-husband and I, or still husband at the time had just bought and just renovated. Um, that was really totally set up for like my life as a food blogger and food photographer. Um, so I sort of was like pressured into finding, my own place because I couldn't survive at my mom's any longer and I couldn't go back to my house in San Diego. And so I was like, fuck, okay, what do I do? The only place in the world or not in the world, the only place in LA, because that's where I was at the time that I felt like I could live was Topanga. So I started going online, looking at Craigslist and being pretty diligent and like, you know, that crazy person that like refreshes the page every five seconds to see if there's a new listing. And this one beautiful, beautiful place came up And I went to see it pretty much right away and I filled out the rental application and then like proceeded to email the landlord a lot when he wasn't getting back to me or seemed like anyone about what decision he was going to make. And after I emailed him like three times, he was like, honestly, I haven't, I still haven't had the time to look at the rental applications, but you are the one who you were one of the first people that reached out to me and you're kind of the only one that's been following up. So I'll just give it to you which was sort of amazing. So anyway, I pack up all my shit. I move into this apartment. And very early on, I remember walking from the apartment. There's a long driveway up a hill. And I had to walk up that hill to go to my mailbox. And one of the first times I did this, I had this sort of flash of remembering and realizing that for a very long time, I hadn't really expressed it necessarily, but I thought about it a lot, that like in my dream life, that I would live somewhere that was like rural enough that there was a long walk to the mailbox. <laughs> Seems like such a random thing, but I thought about that. That was like symbolic to me of living out in nature to an extent. It's funny where I live now, we don't even have mailboxes because the town is so small. So everything's sent to the post office. So that's not quite what I envisioned, but anyway, So I'm walking up to the mailbox and I like, I start to cry because I realize like, oh my God, this thought that I've had for so long, just fucking magically materialized in front of me. And I was like, is this manifestation? Like, I think that's what this is. Like I had this dream. I had this idea. 
I had this feeling, this energy inside me of what I wanted and holy shit, it's right here. So I went into therapy and I'm telling her this story and I'm telling it from the context of like magic, like, oh my God, I just had this thought and this feeling and this thing that I was thinking about. I wasn't even super intentional about it, but I just kept thinking about it and it magically appeared in front of me. And it it was almost like we were speaking over each other at some point, because just when I was sort of like crediting God, (laughs) she was crediting me, but we both simultaneously made this realization or at least said this out loud that like both God and me were the same, right? That like the ability to attract and receive what you want comes from both believing it's possible and allowing it to come, but also taking action in the real world to get it. And that was so like symbolic and accurate to me that made so much sense to me that this whole manifestation thing that people talk about is not just sitting around and thinking about what you want and doing nothing but it's basically about believing in what you want believing that you could attract it but then also being conscious and aware of the world and reaching out to receive reaching out to take what you want what it is you're thinking about So I sort of likened this to, um, like as if I was being, I was a planet and I had this orbit, right. And I was just sort of like, that was my orbit. And before in my life, what I would do was jump off the orbit, like, oh, there's that thing I think I want over there. Let me like get out of my orbit and go chase it, which never worked. And I could never get it. Um, And so I was like, well, what if I just stayed in the orbit? Like, what if I stayed in the orbit? And what if I believed that anything that I deserved or anything that I needed would just appear right in front of me? Maybe that meant I had to be a little bit patient. Maybe that meant if I saw something that was that would require me to leave the orbit, I would know that that wasn't what I needed or what I actually wanted. And so I just let that go It's okay. like, don't fucking knock down doors that are an opening. They're not your door. What if I just stayed in that orbit, trusted and believed that anything that was right for me that would come within arm's reach. And then once it came within arm's reach, I could reach out and take it and bring it into my life. So the staying in the orbit is the manifestation piece, is the allowing yourself to receive peace, is the lack of control piece. But then the seeing what you want and reaching out and taking it, that's the human piece. That's the active piece. That's the, I think, sort of physical, real world expression of your belief. Because if we just sit around and say like, oh, yes, I believe that I deserve a great relationship. But then someone comes into your life and you're too like paranoid or too untrusting to allow them in then you're not allowing that sort of magical process to take place, right? You have to do both. We have to take, we live in the real world. (laughs) I know we all want to embrace these spiritual concepts and we want to believe that the world hands us what we deserve. And I think that's true, but only if we take it, only if we actually opening, open our arms and our lives to what we said we deserve and, and what we believe. And, you know, I think it's really easy to, again, like take that concept of manifestation or letting go or relinquishing control. We take that too far. We don't live in a magical 
And now we don't live in a purely magical fucking rainbow universe. I was going to say unicorn universe. I want to live in a magical rainbow unicorn universe. Anyway, we, I don't actually want to do that. I'm lying. Um, we don't live in that kind of a world. We live in a world in which that's there. That's a part of it. But we live in a Saturnian world. We have our feet on the ground. We have to figure out how to maneuver through the structures and the boundaries and the limitations that exist in the human world as a human. Um, and I think that's great because I think that gives us power and agency. If we just received shit willy nilly, like that would be boring. Um, going out and getting things, creating things, being inspired and putting our pen to paper, like that's amazing. That's fun. And I think that's sort of life force in a way, right? To know what we desire and know how to get it, whether getting it means stepping back for a moment, whether getting it means taking a step forward, reaching out, um, not reaching out, like you have to figure out where the balance is, but that's the flow. The flow is a combination of relinquishing control and reaching out and taking what you know you want and what is being presented and being put in front of you. And so when you listen to this conversation or you try to um, integrate these ideas and these tools into your life, just pay attention to whether or not you're taking this lesson or any lesson too far. We're not actually promoting doing nothing. We're promoting doing a specific type of nothing, a type of nothing that is not pressured by the environment, by your peers, by your job, all that you should be doing, all that you, um, all the type of action, the non-doing, not the doing something, <laughs> all the doing something in your life should be coming from an authentic, integrated, aligned place within you. And you can ask yourself, I talk about this too, like one thing that was really important for me and really um, taught me a lot was to totally break down my life and ask myself why I did everything. Like, why are you wearing that today? Is that what you really want to wear? Or is that what like society's telling you to wear? Why are you washing your dishes at night? Is that what you want to do? Or is that what society's telling you to do? Would you rather wash your dishes in the morning? You know, why are you going after that job? Why are you taking that job? Why are you eating at that restaurant? Why are you going to sleep at this specific time? Why are you engaging in these specific modes of self-care and not these other ones? If you can really ask yourself those questions, then you can start to see like, what is it that you desire? What is it that you want versus what you feel pressured to want or desire? What's coming from an authentic, true place? What's coming from a place of self-doubt or self-deprecation? Um, but really finding ways like to just actually live in the flow. No one doing nothing's the right choice. No one doing something's the right choice. And then watching how those two things work together to allow you to manifest what you want. And this is why I think like enrolling in courses around manifestation, like uh, it's a waste of time and money in my opinion, <laughs> because while someone could certainly teach you how to do nothing or how to just like dream or how to identify what it is that you want, you can't necessarily teach someone how to believe in themselves enough to take it when it's in front of them. Like what's that Marianne Williamson quote? Um, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. I think for those of you that feel super stuck, <laughs> who feel like 
actually, maybe you need to take more control. I often think that that's what's going on. Because, yeah, we can be fearful of the ways that we might fail. But what might happen if, like, you got what you wanted? What might happen if you actually embrace your, embraced your gifts? This resonated for me a lot. And I wasn't the type of person that needed to get more control over my life. But I could sort of see that... I was self-sabotaging myself, not because I thought I was going to fail, but actually because I thought I would succeed. And then what? Then I'd have to be in the spotlight. Then I'd have to keep working. Then I'd have to keep um, evolving. And that in and of itself was terrifying because I knew that evolving meant confronting my shadow. I knew that evolving meant grieving the ways that I'd self-sabotaged myself for so fucking long. I didn't, you know, the status quo was like, oh, I'm used to this level of, of, you know, um, self-sabotage. I don't really like, it's just my comfort zone. Um, so I think that's an important thing to ponder. And I have truly watched my life. Like this was very unnerving at first. I have to say the process of relinquishing control and like just allowing myself to be in that orbit felt extremely uncomfortable. I felt like I almost felt like my life was operating like four steps ahead of me and I didn't know if I'd ever catch up because all these like wonderful things kept occurring <laughs> and I didn't sort of expect them. I, I wasn't prepared for them and that that went away. But for a while there, it felt like the out of control feeling, even though my life was doing things and things were being brought into my life that I wanted, just the fact that I wasn't controlling them was a very strange experience and a very new experience that I had to integrate. And now it feels a lot natural. So it does get better. Um, it is a bit scary at first to trust your fucking orbit, but it gets easier and that orbit becomes more comfortable. And then once you trust it, you do really start to see that anything you need or want does appear. And all you need to do is just reach out and grab it. Just believe in yourself enough to know and to trust that, yeah, that thing just appeared in my life. Okay, let's go. I'm going to take it. I'm going to bring it into my orbit. So definitely take a step back and resist ways where you feel like you're being controlled by an external force to produce, to make any kind of decision. But take control where you feel like it's coming from an internal, authentic place of desire that's flow. You move just not too fast. <laughs> so I'm going to play you in today with another song. It's lots of music in this episode. I kind of love it. Um, I'm going to play you on in with a song called Shorty Don't Wait by A Great Big World. And I think you'll know why I chose it when you hear it. Enjoy the conversation with Jenny um, again, if you'd like to support the podcast, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz is the way to do that. If you would like to sign up for the March Lunar Circle, anyakotz.com slash Lunar Circle is where you will find all the information and be able to enroll. And I will talk to you on the other side. Love you guys. Shorty, don't wait in line Shorty, don't wait till the sun don't shine 
Shorty, don't wait in line. Shorty, don't wait till your life goes by. When your heart don't feel like dancing, I'll be there to give you mine. And when you lose that happy feeling, well, I will lift your spirits high. So, shorty, don't wait. Shorty, don't wait till the sun don't shine. Shorty, don't wait in line. Shorty, don't wait till your life goes by. And all those people who have hurt you, but they ain't worth. Your precious time, and when there's no one you can turn to, I'll be right there by your side. Shorty, don't wait in line. Shorty, don't wait. Shoulders, so you can rest your head on mine. And when you feel like starting over, well, don't think twice. It's all right. Yeah, it's all right. Oh, surely don't wait. Okay, I am here with Jenny, who I have wanted to have on the podcast for quite some time. I first uh, reached out in the spring when the pandemic was happening, um, which felt like a very sort of 
um, poignant time to have this conversation. And I'm really glad that we, I mean, we're still in quarantine, I guess. We're still in COVID, so it's still super relevant. Um, but you wrote an amazing book called How to Do Nothing um, that is really in line with so many of what, so many of the things that I try to talk about on this podcast. Um, so I'm really excited to share your book and your perspective with my audience. Um, so I guess first, for those who are listening who haven't read your book, um, I would love if you could sort of talk about like what inspired you to create the book, um, why you wanted to write it, and also maybe comment on like the kind of... <laughs> Like, not hypocrisy necessarily, but, like, um, it doesn't seem like doing nothing and writing a book feels super synonymous, so I'm, I'm curious how you sort of reconciled that for yourself. <laughs> no, that is, that is true. Um, well, so interestingly, I, I actually didn't set out to write a book. Um, mm. I, I originally wrote what is now chapter one of the book as a talk um, mm. in early 2017, and that happened because in late 2016, um, I was kind of having a personal reckoning with um, the attention economy and social media and just kind of trying to exist as a person in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I was also just processing a lot. Um, <laughs> not only was that post-election, but it was also around the time of the ghost ship fire in Oakland, mm. which is where I live, um, which was, you know, just like a horrible tragedy. And yeah. so... Um, I was just, you know, I was processing a lot and I happened to be asked to give this talk the following summer at a conference that, that tends to have a lot of artists in the audience mm. and my background is in art. And so, um, I, I sort of submitted the talk title, how to do nothing, <laughs> um, before I had a talk of right. that title, um, a little bit in exasperation just because that's what I was doing at the time when I was asked was going and sitting in this municipal rose garden and doing nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and so the talk really emerged out of that moment and that prompt and thinking through um, kind of like survival strategies for that moment. Um, and also as I was sitting there in the garden, thinking through the value of things like non-commercial public spaces um, spaces for reflection, conversation, nuance, complexity. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and these are things that I think I had valued for a long time, but it was just really coming to the fore in a new way at that moment. So um, so that turned into a talk. And then it was actually another author, Adam Greenfield, who suggested to me that I try to turn the talk into a book. So um, I, I don't think that it would have happened otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. And I feel like it also... I'd love to like help illuminate some of the nuance here too, because I have this audience of, of young people who are sort of constantly like struggling with, I feel like getting in touch with their own intuition and trying to figure out where to draw the line between like what feels like good productivity and what feels like good creation or what feels like good promotion and what doesn't. Um, and I wonder, especially in your experience of promoting this book as well, um, like, how did you start to make some of those decisions? Like where, and I know you talk about this in the book a lot, but like, where was the line sort of between this mindless um, production and sort of this thing coming from a capitalist impulse versus like art and creativity and like creating something that makes us feel like we have a purpose on this planet or that it's something meaningful? Yeah, that's a great question. I 
and it's it's something that I I sort of circle around still because um, mm. I agree it's not always so clear. Yeah, I think that so far my sense is that it's a felt difference. I think when you're pursuing something out of curiosity and enthusiasm, it somehow is lacking that element of fear that I feel Mm -hmm. is underpinning the other version, right? Like I think the sort of capitalism driven, uh, you know, you know, burnout or just sort of overwork, whether that's something you're sort of bringing on yourself as a culture of productivity, or you just literally your the life circumstances that you have to work that much. Um, that that's like, it has this undercurrent of fear where it's like, you're trying to keep up, you're trying to tread water. You're afraid of what will happen if you stop. Mm. Um, you know, I even think of like probably an influencer, right. Is probably scared of what will happen if they, if they drop it for even a second. (laughs) So it's like, um, if I don't commodify every aspect of my being and myself, like, I don't know what will happen. Um, and so there's that fear. Whereas, um, I, I mean, I, (laughs) this is dumb, but my, my boyfriend just got an iPad, um, and with an Apple pencil and I started drawing on it. And I, I forgot that I, I used to love to draw when I was in, all, all the way through college, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I stayed up really late, just like making stupid gifts on the on this iPad. And and, I, and there was like an intensity about it. Like I was like, I really want to like learn all these like little things about this, you know, it's the, the Procreate program, which I think a lot of artists use. Yeah. Um, but that feels so different, right? Like there's somehow that's coming from me. Um, and it's sort of emanating out of something that feels like it's in me rather than, um, me trying to kind of live up to something or appear adequate at something. So I, I think that that kind of, yeah, being, a, being attentive to the, the level of that, that feeling of fear is something that can be like a really interesting compass. Right. Yeah. And can you elaborate a little bit more about like how you kind of define, doing nothing like what are the types of things that you're sort of categorizing or organizing within a sort of like unhealthy attention economy paradigm versus um like obviously you're not promoting us just like all sit around and like meditate for the rest of our lives um so really yeah like just talk about like what what that doing nothing actually means or actually looks like like in our daily lives yeah I think it's I often have this image in my head of almost like sitting back, um, like as if you were sitting back in like a lawn chair or something, mm-hmm. um, not literally, I mean, you could be sitting in a lawn chair, but kind of like in your <laughs> mind. So, right. um, I don't think it's always clear, right? Like the same activity can go either way. Mm. So, I mean, it's, it's easy for me to say things like, Oh, you know, bird watching and going for walks going for hikes, like, you know, these are all things that I, I talk about in the book and I clearly am a fan of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wandering in the library. Um, but to take bird watching as an example or at birding as some people are apparently very adamant about calling it, um, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, there's, there's the sort of lazy version, which is what I feel like I'm doing. And then there's like the really intense version, which is like, you know, you have your checklist and you're being very systematic about it. And you, mm. maybe you go to a specific place because there was something reported there and you're disappointed if you don't see it. 
um, and you've got all the gear and, you know, um, right. and don't get me wrong. I love going on birding trips where people have the gear because then I get to look through the scope. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's like there in any activity, there's there are different stances that you can take. So right. certainly some activities are more conducive to a to more relaxed state of mind than others. But I would say pretty much anything where you may have a sense of purpose like locally within that thing that you're doing, right? Like a game is a good example. If you're playing a game with your friends, like you want to win hmm. within the game. It's not like you want to win life against your friends. It's, you just, <laughs> you just like the goal, the actual overarching goal is to enjoy the game with your right. friends. And then locally the goal is to win. So um, I think I would categorize anything like that as falling into, you know, doing nothing, just anything where, um, the, the sort of overarching broader goal is something more nebulous, like enjoyment or feelings mm. of connection or awareness of your environment, um, that are, are also kind of absurd to try to optimize. Like you yeah. can't optimize, you know, what's the optimum good time to have with your friends. <laughs> like it's a, you know, try to imagine writing an algorithm for that or something right. would be crazy. So um, yeah, I think that's maybe one way of thinking of it. Yeah, that makes sense. I really, I like what you say about the fact that like, you know, one activity can be expressed in two very different ways. Um, and I also think like one activity, even if it was sort of expressed or experienced in the same way is going to feel different for two different people. Um, because obviously like our own individual purpose or like what we enjoy individually is a personal experience and can't be something like you said, that's like an algorithm or like a system by which to attain enjoyment and happiness. Um, I, I feel like too, like, what do you feel like people are like, I wonder if that's part of the avoidance, like what are we avoiding by doing a bunch of stuff? Um, and I feel like a lot of the time people don't really know what they want to do or don't really know what feels good to them um, because there is so much like busyness, because they're so focused on controlling their environment that it's like we're actually kind of afraid to ask ourselves those questions, if that makes sense. Um, like, who are yeah. we and what do we want and what are we good at? Totally. I mean, those can be really daunting questions because I think they're also tied to even bigger questions of, um, you know, like, <laughs> what's my life for? Uh, <laughs> you know, why am I alive? Like all of these, uh, you know, they they very quickly come into view um, mm. and are difficult to grapple with. So, I mean, I I like thinking about that stuff now. Yeah, <laughs> but right. I can see why, you know, uh, it would be a little bit... Um, uncomfortable. And I also just think it's sort of, I, I think it's important to realize how strong certain habits of mind are and to kind of not, not blame yourself for the fact that that's difficult to try to, mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to do something different after you've done the same thing over and over again for your whole life. It's like, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Um, and you, and you are going to feel this resistance to it. Um, so funny. I'm like totally distracted by this titmouse that just landed outside my window. <laughs> it's like landed in the most perfectly. It's like, it wanted me to notice it. Um, I don't know if you know what, okay. It flew away. <laughs> um, they're extremely cute birds. Um, but anyway, uh, 
yeah, I think there's, um, there's, there's a, if, yeah, like I was saying, if you, if you've been sort of in a crouched position, let's say like for Mm -hmm. your entire life, um, kind of grasping onto certain ideals and values, and you've been told that certain things are necessary Mm -hmm. and that you need to be, you know, exhibiting the fact of working and you need to externalize that. Um, and that's sort of the culture that you grew up in, then like to try to do anything other than that is going to be an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I think like a really cool journey also, cause you end up, you know, finding out all of these things that might be surprising and you're, you know, you're not the person that you thought you were and, um, right. things that you thought were necessary aren't necessary. And that's very exhilarating. Yeah. So I think it's, it's just important to like respect the fact that we, live in a very consistent capitalist ether and that that in some cases has gotten really you know has has really colonized even like ways that you think about yourself and and simply having some humility with respect to that challenge is is helpful yeah for sure I feel like I see that expressed a lot through people especially that listen to my podcast in struggling with like I, I'm and I, I wonder if you've gotten some of this pushback as well. There's this weird perspective that it's like, oh, okay, you're only able to kind of like do things that you enjoy or like live your life in an authentic, aligned way, or do nothing if you're privileged. And like, there's this weird guilt that I feel like people who are in privileged positions feel that they feel like they should like suffer as well, like that by actually taking advantage of that privilege or like motivating other people or like creating spaces for people who aren't privileged to actually do these things. It's a weird, I mean, I sort of understand where the perspective comes from, but I, I'm curious if you've heard that. And like, to me, it almost sounds like the guilt is still being fueled by that, like overarching capitalistic framework. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I, I mean, I, not in any particularly pointed way, but, you know, I have, I feel like I have gotten some of that pushback and I, you know, I have that in myself too, right? It's like yeah. I, I push back against myself. Um, and I think that that can be really hard. It That's like sort of complicated knot of a lot of things. I mean, mm-hmm. I think I have certainly felt that guilt and I think it comes from a very understandable place of, you know, understanding that I have a fairly rarefied life situation Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes like a hyper awareness of that and, and, you know, being unhappy that about how, how rarefied it is. Um, But at the same time, I, I don't see really any use in sort of piling shame on yourself about it because that's not you know it's not really achieving anything (laughs) like I I think I I tried to I remember it was difficult to write that part of the book where I kind of talk about this and I say that you know if you have if you can afford to pay pay a different kind of attention you should Mm -hmm. and that ultimately like this is what could potentially help you to start thinking about you know ways that you could um be be of some help in terms of opening up space and time for others who don't have it 
right. um, which is, is still something I'm trying to do. I mean, I'm literally I'm working on a book right now about time um, mm-hmm. where I'm thinking about that, uh, these kind of disparities more uh, yeah. and, and trying to be just trying to learn more about it and, and, and be even more thoughtful about it. So, um, but then I think like separate from that, there's just this like Protestant work ethic thing, which is Mm -hmm. like, if you're not working, you know, it's like salvation through work, like work is how you morally purify yourself. And I think, I think even people who have never heard of the Protestant work ethic, (laughs) um, and, or do have heard of it and, and say that they're not informed by it are still, they still have, it's like I said, it's part of that ether, right? It's like part of, um, the, this culture of, uh, work is how you express your value in society. And so, uh, anything other than that is, is selfish and, and wasteful. Right. And I feel like it's even, you know, I think about it in terms of, you know, people who are promoting things like four hour work weeks are like not working that much, but then like, it's very clear that they're working a lot. (laughs) Like I'm unsure why the people that promote not working haven't really followed their own advice. And it's just sort of this like insidious cycle, um, where I feel like on the surface we're being told one thing, but because it's still sort of like feeding into this idea of consumption and of capitalism that it's so uncomfortable to actually just slow down um, and not keep, like, people don't really know when to stop, you know? Like, they're so, (laughs) it's just like we keep going. And and I don't know, maybe that's just a result of thinking, like, obviously, like, okay, when I get to this place, I'll be happy. When I get to this place, I'll be happy, which Mm -hmm. is, like, so, I mean, just, like, definition of capitalism and consumption. Um, Do you, did you ever struggle, like, thinking that, you know, in writing this book, like, I know you talk a lot about the self and self-promotion, um, that do you feel like there's like the universe was kind of like poking you to sort of like discover, uncover new things about this, like when you were kind of forced to (laughs) make these decisions about what you were and were not going to participate in? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that year, like 2019 was a journey, um, for that reason. Um, in part because I, you know, it's my first book and my background up until then had mostly actually been in visual art, not in writing. Mm. So I wrote the book blissfully unaware of what the publishing <laughs> process is. <laughs> or, you know, I didn't even know things like, you know, when does the paperback come out after the, right. hard, like, you know, just these like really basic um, things involved in publishing a book. And so when, And then I also, on top of that, I didn't expect the book to become that popular because it's a weird book. I mean, it's, and I have some sympathy for people who buy it thinking that it's going to be some kind of straightforward self-help. And then it's this totally weird, like, pile of stuff um, that I like. So um, I was further surprised by that. um, And it definitely, um, it it definitely kind of threw me off course a little bit. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and, and I was, was kind of trying to get my bearings. Um, and I, I really hated doing any kind of promotion for a long time because it just yeah. felt gross, you know, like according to my sort of, uh, you know, model of the self that I talk about in the book. But, but on top of that, the, the form of art that I have made for a long time and I, and I count, 
how to do nothing as part of this is like, I am a person who gathers pre-existing things together and puts them in some kind of interesting constellation. And then I sort of recede. And then I expect, you know, the viewer or the reader to kind of come through and Hmm. at their own pace, they can sort of wander through. Um, But I'm not there, you know, hitting someone over the head with an argument. I hope. I mean, that's like, that's just kind of how I I work. And so I think that made it extra difficult to then be sort of put on the spot, like answer for this book, (laughs) this thing that you made. Um, (laughs) But I think, uh, you know, I eventually kind of made my peace with, with the whole thing. I, I, I sort of realized that as a person who myself has found out about really amazing books through those authors, you know, promotional efforts. Um, and, and was so grateful to have found out about them. I'm like, I I have to remember that like, Oh, right. Like this is, some of this is simply just trying to share an idea. You know, if you like, just think about it that, that way. Um, and then beyond that, the sort of necessities of doing that, um, there are still lines you can draw, like, you know, I don't, have an Instagram empire, <laughs> you know, like right. I don't have, uh, like branded infographics. Um, and I'm like a fairly private person, uh, and I keep like a really hard boundary between like my professional and private life, even though the book is so personal, right? Like that right. makes it challenging, but, um, I, I have, you know, recognized the importance of that and, and kind of taken some steps to just, um, you know, protect like a, a part of myself in my life. Um, and so I've, I've come to a place where it, it's like, it feels okay, which I'm right. really grateful for. Yeah. I would like to talk about, I mean, the social media thing is like such a like monstrosity. Um, but like, it's so common. I, I think young people in their twenties and thirties who sort of grew up with some form of social media, like it almost to to them feels dishonest or like lacking in authenticity to not showcase everything online. And I found myself falling into these traps too. I mean, I think I'm pretty good at this point at drawing the lines, but before I was actually consciously thinking of it, like there's a pull in just the social media itself. Um, And I wonder if you've come up against that at all. Like, was it always kind of easy for you to draw those lines or did you feel kind of like conflicted about like what should be public and what should be private? And I guess those, those concepts in and of themselves are so broad, but I'm really fascinated by the whole public private sphere (laughs) discussion. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I'll just mention, um, every year. So I teach three times a year. Um, one of those classes is internet art. And I think it was about two or three years ago. Um, I usually have my students do presentations on what I called internet niche phenomena. So it's like just something Mm. weird that you've noticed online and you do a presentation and somebody did their presentation on, um, influencers who were going to fashion, New York fashion week. And the, the student was comparing their Instagram posts to their YouTube channels and the Instagram posts were very um, composed and sort of resolved and professional looking. And, you know, Instagram really lends itself to fashion hmm. um, and sort of like, you know, framing a shot. Right. Um, yeah. And then the YouTube channels were like kind of like not not the blooper reel, but <laughs> they were like the same. It would be the same influencer 
in their hotel room saying, well, I went to fashion week and I didn't get invited to any parties. So I'm just here in my hotel room and it really sucks. (laughs) And they're being like very honest. Um, And we were like, okay, well, this is like the behind the scenes of Mm. the Instagram. But, and, but then we were talking in class about, well, if this is behind the scenes, then what's behind behind the scenes? (laughs) (laughs) Is there a behind behind the scenes anymore? Like, does it it exist? And I remember like finding that question, like very troubling at the time. Um, Like this idea of interiority and like whether, you know, whether someone who has completely externalized their interiority, like has any left. And I don't know, Mm. I can't speak for that because I've never done that. But, um, you know, I, I'm sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum where um, I actually recently archived probably about half of my Instagram posts um, because I was like, a, I don't know who needs to see this, <laughs> and and B, like my Instagram account was created when I was, you know, like it was for me and basically people right. I knew, right? Um, and then and so I went through and I was kind of just trying to leave things that like are in that, you know, whatever professional category, mm-hmm. and then, and then I remember thinking, like wow, someone who had looked at this account would have totally the wrong idea of my life. Like it just is completely distorted. And then I was like, that's fine. Right. <laughs> right? Like what is an undistorted, like what is an undistorted view of my life? Who should have access to that? Um, I'm not even sure if I know what that is. So right. um, I, yeah, I, I think I've definitely, um, I think there probably was a moment like, you know, right after the book came out where, I was very unsure about a lot of these things. And then ever since then, it's been kind of like a steady drift in the direction of like, okay, I'm going to close this door and then I'm going to close this door. And, um, and, and I think, you know, it's not the same for everyone. I think it definitely depends on, you know, what you make and how you make it and what it's about. But, but for me, like, I, I think it's hard for me to say this cause I'm like a self deprecating person, but it's like, I think I have, you know, the ability to write something that's useful to some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will be more, it will be better and it will be more useful if, if I have more private time and space. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how it's like, you know, what's the goal here is the goal to get, you know, more engagement or something like that. Or is the goal for me to write a book that's good. And if the goal right. is to write a book that's good, then it's very clear what I need to do. Right. Yeah, I feel like there's a like, I remember when I started this podcast, it was really important to me because I had experienced so many people with like public platforms like books or podcasts or TED Talks or just a public life and a public persona where what they were doing in their sort of public life was so not the way they were acting or the way that they treated their public life. And that was like, (laughs) severely disturbing. Um because often like all we see is the public life. And so we just assume these people are kind of like that in their real life or um, doing those same types of activities or holding those same types of values. And it was like wildly off-putting to me that that wasn't the case. And I, when I started my podcast, I was like, that's not going to be me. Like I'm going to like walk the talk and I'm going to be totally honest. And anytime anybody asks me like, what is the most challenging part about having the podcast it's totally like trying to navigate what I share or I don't share, you know, like how to be authentic, but 
still hold privacy and still have a personal life. Um, and yeah. I just expected to that, to that to be really easy. And then like, I found out it was actually much more challenging than I thought it was going to be. Um, yeah. And, and I would add to part of the reason I think that's so difficult is, um, it's not as if these are neutral platforms, like Instagram mm-hmm. is designed for you to share your entire life. Um, I mean, I was just reading this really terrifying, um, blog post by someone who, um, had basically like met with someone from Instagram, um, and talked, I think they were like an influencer. And so they Mm -hmm. were having this meeting with people on Instagram and, um, and so in this blog post, they were sharing what they had learned about, um, how to get your metrics up. Um, like as of recently, because there've been all these changes and just reading this post, it was exhausting to me. It was like, okay, so in order for you to get your numbers up, you have, it's not enough to post all the time. You have to post, you have to make Instagram posts, reels and stories. And it's like certain number of reels and a certain number of stories with consistency. So you can't, it has to be a certain number all the time. Um, and you you have to use all the features in every feature. (laughs) Um, and I felt so old reading this because like, I barely even knew what reels were. (laughs) It was like, yeah. Um, and, uh, and so you can, that's just an example, right? Of like, that's a very, um, technical and design based, um, manner in which the platform is is preferring a certain type and level of engagement so it's 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 hard for that reason too right you're like you're yeah. it's like you're on a planet with physics that really favor certain types of things happening and you're trying to do something else and it just right. you're just always going to feel uncomfortable right um yeah for sure um could you elaborate a little bit on what you talk about in the book around the self and the sort of version of self that we have now and the sort of version of self that you um promote or hope that we can get back to and just thinking about the social media conversation like I think we forget what (laughs) we forget what selfhood is at this point um without social media or without like the self as a brand. And, um, I would just be, I'm just interested to hear you kind of expand upon that a little bit and like what sort of a healthy version of self looks like to you. Yeah. I mean, just speaking from my own experience, I think that I often view the self as well, I think I use the word blobby several times in the book, um, and I just use it a lot in general. But I think my version of a of a healthy self is something that's very blobby, um, mm-hmm. something that is porous and um, you know changes from moment to moment. Maybe more porous in some moments than others, and expands and contracts, yeah. um, and sort of emerges at the intersection of many different things. Which I think you know, if you really just take a moment to think about it, that's to me, that's just closer to the truth anyway, right? Like that's, you know, if you really sit down and try to think, okay, what is my self? Oh, who is having these thoughts, et cetera. You know, like you pretty quickly um, end up at the absurdity of trying to pinpoint yourself like something, you know, a dot in space. Right. Um, So that's obviously very different from, uh, 
you know, something like the personal brand, which um, I, you know, I worked at a large corporation for a couple of years after grad school. And I remember them using the phrase brand pillars, which apparently is, I've heard uh, other people say that that's like other companies were using that too. But, but the idea with brand pillars was that um, a brand is valuable insofar as it has not changed over time and it accrues value and because people have associations with it and therefore financially, it's very important to not um, change any of those things to be sort of monolithic, to be instantly recognizable, to be distinguishable from other brands for, for some reason that's very easy to identify. Um, but I would just mostly emphasize that unchanging part. Um, and so I think you see the same thing with personal brands where someone with a, you know, an effective personal brand is someone who's um, easy to pick out, easy to remember, easy to identify, um, almost like you could write an algorithm mm. for that person, right? Like yeah. uh, there's there's sort of a predictable structure to the way they say things and react to things, um, which kinds of things they prefer and which they don't. And uh, to me, that just sounds like, you know, a sarcophagus. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, are you you know, are you still alive? Like if you're not changing and and not having encounters that change you. Um, And I like to think, you know, in contrast to like an additive model of selfhood where you're this kind of thing and you're adding things to yourself over the course of your life, like skills or knowledge Mm -hmm. or even experiences. Right. Um, I like to think more in terms of like a chemical metaphor, like a reactive one, where it's like you you add in a little bit of this and the whole thing changes. Mm. <laughs> um, maybe very subtly, but um, right. and then or you could go through like state changes or or things like that. So like you are like yes, there is change and you're moving forward in time, but it's not this kind of like um, linear progress type of accumulation model. Um, right. And that's just, I mean, again, that's. That's from my perspective, just I feel like the meaningful moments in my life have been ones that were uh, where I almost forgot who I was. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I sometimes give the example of this. Um, this happened after I, I published the book, but I I was hiking somewhere that's very unpopular. So that I just wasn't seeing anyone at all. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I happened to see a baby flycatcher like on the ground. It was just like chilling on a stick um, and its parent was flying around getting bugs for it to eat. And it was such a shocking sight that I just like completely, it was like an attention emergency. Like I had to like stop everything and I don't know how long I was there. I was basically just there until they left. Um, And there's this sort of dual nature of the, you know, being I was completely present. I was totally there. And I was in a way I was like totally myself at the same time that Mm -hmm. I, all of my kind of like proper noun identifications, like time and place and age and occupation and all these things like just kind of went out the window. Um, And it's like this moment of observing something so intensely that you almost like merge with it. Mm. And uh, I just really love that feeling. Um, but it's, it's so, um, so different from the experience of self where you have, you know, defensible boundaries and you're just kind of going around, um, often in like competition with others, Mm. I think, 
um, and, yeah. and worried about falling behind in that competition uh, and, and just kind of, yeah, being in this, uh, like, yeah, maybe like, maybe it doesn't feel like there's fear involved in that, but there's some kind of like apprehension or, um, this feeling of like needing to, to defend something, um, or acquire or gain or things like that. Whereas like this other experience is much more just like it kind of just existing. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think all of this also makes it a lot more challenging for us to like change our mind about something or like admit we were wrong about something or, you know, I, I experience, I mean, and I certainly went through this too. Like when I was in my twenties, I like got married and was working in the natural products industry and was like living this like weird house life, life in San Diego. And I had this like food blog and like my whole, like everything was revolving around this sort of like persona or projection of who I was to the world. And I feel like it makes our ability to reconstruct ourselves or like reevaluate our life so much more challenging. I feel like it's already challenging just to do it if you were doing it in a vacuum, but to do it in front of like, you know, your audience of 200,000 Instagram followers who are like counting on you to just basically stay the same like weird robot brand. Um, I just, I worry that uh, so many people are just like becoming these just empty shells of not even themselves anymore. <laughs> the empty shell of a yeah. body or something. Totally. Um, totally. And it's, um, it's, there's something about, a, you know, just to take Instagram, for example, um, there's something about a platform like that. And, and, you know, I was just saying like the a platform that favors like total engagement and right. like, total constant engagement I think it can really quickly start to feel like the world. Um, Yeah. And totally, you know, it's like, it looks, you go on Instagram and it looks like something, it looks like everyone is doing something or everyone is saying something. And then you just go outside and it's just completely different. Um, And, uh, and so I, I think, I think that that's really easy to get caught up in and kind of lose perspective and it, it probably makes the, the stakes of things seem much higher, right? Like right. Um, if if your Instagram audience is sort of like the audience for you, it's just like the, wor- the world, the public opinion, um, then, you know, uh, doing anything there that's, um, you know, doesn't get immediately approved is going to feel very risky. Mm-hmm. And it actually makes me think of something my... My dad was just telling me my my grandpa was an artist um, and a writer, and he my dad was telling me that my grandpa, when my dad was a kid, told him, he said the best day of my life was when I realized that I was just like everyone else, and I've been thinking about that so much ever since, like yeah. this like relief of like mm. like I'm just. Like I'm just a person, <laughs> I'm just yeah. one person, and and that that it was making me, you know, my dad and I weren't talking about Instagram, but it, but mm-hmm. I was thinking later about how different that feels from a platform that tells every person that they're not like other people and that they're important right. and that they're like a micro celebrity, 
or they should have aspirations right. to be one. Um, and that everyone cares what their take is on something. <laughs> um, yeah. and it's like, I don't know. I was just like, just thinking about that phrase. Like, I'm just like everyone else. It was just like, like, actually that is the, fe- that is the feeling that I want. Um, right. and, uh, and yet there's something about, I mean, I think it's like similar to the fact that like people are often driven to Instagram out of feelings of loneliness. Mm. Um, and then, and then they don't find what they're looking for there. They, they find something else. Um, and in a similar manner, like, I think what I was looking for is just this, like, I'm just like everyone else. And, uh, which is, I think like related to a feeling of, of loneliness. And then you, you go to this platform that, you know, incidentally gives you the opposite of that. Right. Right. And if you're so, if you're spending so much time there, and I was recently talking to someone about this cause there was like, I'm very like anti cancel culture and less like there's this whole culture and this whole world online. And it's like, sometimes you forget <laughs> it's like, that's not the real world. And you can talk to someone who's just like, I don't know anything about that. Like I've never experienced anything like that. Like who are these people that you're talking to? You know, like is this isn't actually real life. It's like, we're all in a Sims game. Um, but yeah, we really totally. don't even know it. And we, Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I, I don't know if it's because I've been, I'm reading this book right now called Reality is Not What It Seems by mm. Carlo Rovelli. It's about um, quantum physics, but it's written for like someone who doesn't know anything about physics. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's got some mind blowing like time and space stuff, but the, yeah. the part, I was reading the part about relativity. Yeah. And then I think because I had was reading that, um, and also because I, in especially in the second half of 2020, I really started engaging with social media a lot less. Um, so like not looking at the main feed mm-hmm. pretty much of either Twitter or Instagram. Yeah. Um, but I noticed that it's like, it's like you're in it, right? And there's like a pace and yeah. a tone, of course. Um, and then you leave and say you leave for like, I don't know, a week or something. Um, And you come back and it's like, it doesn't even have to be three days, right? Like you come back and it's like, oh my God. Like, (laughs) like everybody is screaming. Like, uh, and, and it seems like more time has passed. Like, um, and yeah. And, and that somehow like time is passing at like different rates, like in, as you get further or closer. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons I think it's just really interesting to do that once in a while is just like, just like step away for a little bit. Um, you know, not to mention yeah. for your mental health, but like step away out of, you know, curiosity and then, and then come back. And it's like, um, things, things that seemed like just kind of background phenomena will, I think very quickly come to the fore. Um, yeah things like like the tone and the pace will become noticeable to you. Um, and you may well realize like, I don't, I don't want to be here at all. <laughs> like this right. is terrible or like this makes me feel terrible. Um, yeah. Yeah. And of course, like what we're talking about on social media is just like a microcosm. I feel like of the attention economy and of capitalism as a whole, right. The same could be applied. Like I, I spend summers sometimes like four or five months at a time living out of a van and we're in nature often without cell phone service. 
And I noticed especially this year because I think just like the overall tone and energy and baseline of like civilization and society is like even more like high strong and anxious than it's ever been before. But I found myself like removing myself from sort of mainstream society for days at a time or weeks at a time going back felt like I was being, I mean, it was like a physical attack. Like I felt so, so terrible. Um, and that was really, it was almost like, I'm still, I don't really know what even to do about that at this point. I mean, I live in a very, like a tiny little town in rural, rural Colorado, so it's pretty chill. Um, but it was, it was kind of devastating to me to realize like, how myself included, like how many of us are really unaware of how unhealthy those environments are. And, and also this, like, I guess that could be seen as like, oh, yay, I discovered this, but it's also kind of depressing and frightening because like, how do we exist if not within these structures? It was like, like you said, it's like, at least when you're sort of just engaged in it, you don't realize how fucked up it is. Um, but when you remove yourself, like yeah. I just, it just got, it was so bad. Like I, I really, I was surprised at, you know, within two minutes, like I had, be, I become a different person. Um, yeah. And was like totally. really angry. Like your and heart bitter. rate goes up and <laughs> yeah. you feel like sick. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, I, I totally know that feeling. Um, yeah. I mean, one sort of, uh, it tactic that I have been thinking through lately is, you know, like I, I don't advocate in the, I don't necessarily advocate in the book for this kind of cold Turkey quitting everything. I don't, I don't yeah. not advocate that, but right. I'm sort of addressing a reader who, um, you know, it's, it's a, this kind of weird meantime, right? Like <laughs> while we wait for some form of decentralized non-commercial, utopian social network. Um, (laughs) and I, um, I just discovered yesterday a way to make the what's trending box go away on Twitter, Mm. which is something I have been trying to figure out for (laughs) years. Um, so I figured that out. Um, and I was talking to my boyfriend about it yesterday about like, like, okay, there's these little workarounds, right? Like there's all these kinds of like interesting hacks that people have come up with online, like Mm. the, how to make it be sort of kind of how you want it to be. Um, and he was saying like, okay, well you could also just leave. Um, or like you could just recognize that like, this is a game that's set up to, for a certain type of goal and it's not your goal. (laughs) Um, and so in some ways it's like a futile effort. Um, but I, I think that these kind of intermediary measures are interesting um, in this kind of, again, like intermediary step of still being engaged with something, but not, not completely sucked into it and right. being able to retain some kind of agency where you're able to just look, look at it and not kind of through it. Um, and I find it significant, for example, like I, years ago, I, I got this Chrome extension called Facebook newsfeed eradicator, which just makes your newsfeed go away. But as a result of the newsfeed going away, I stopped using it because it turns out that the newsfeed is like the most addictive (laughs) part of Facebook. Um, and I don't miss it. I 0% miss it. Um, and so I, I'm interested in these kind of like these little kind of steps where, 
you could maybe potentially, I mean, I, I, I always say like, you know, I want to treat Twitter like a book in the library. It's like mm-hmm. just another book. There's all these other books and one of them is Twitter and you open it and you see what the Twitter version of this problem is and then you close it and you put it away. Right. Like that's what I want. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I, I love that because I also uh, spend my time sometimes <laughs> thinking about like, are there healthy, positive, self-fulfilling ways to use some of these tools? And I really love that in your book, like, I mean, you start out like the whole introduction, basically, like this is not an anti-technology book, you know, like we're not just demonizing, you know, the entire we're the entire technological realm. It's just about like, is there a way to kind of utilize these tools in a positive context? And um, I can't say that I've like figured out what those are across the board, but as someone that feels really tied, like I feel like my life force is so tied into my creativity. If I can disconnect that from like being pressured to create and just using these things to like showcase creations that just occurred because I wanted them to, mm-hmm. um, yeah, then exactly. to, yeah, like to me that feels like a win. And I, I just think like our concept of work and career have just been just overtaken by so much crap. And, you know, it's like you go into hunter gatherer tribes and you like ask them about work. And even though they're spending, you know, 10 hours of their day, like doing something that to us looks like work, like to them, it's not work you know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I actually have, I haven't read it yet, but I have a book on my desk, uh, the Kathy weeks, um, the problem with work, which I think mm. kind of touches on that a little bit. Um, right. you know, just kind of interrogating the, the notion of work itself, which I mean, yeah. I read a little bit of the introduction and she's like, you know, it's kind of funny that we have all these conversations about more work or less work, but we don't question like the category of work itself. Mm. Um, and I think that artists and, you know, other people who make things live with the sort of complexity of that, where, you know, I, as a, as an exercise uh, earlier this summer, I, I was trying to keep track. I was trying to, I don't know what the word is for. It's not time budgeting, but like where you, you, you keep track of how you spent all the hours in the day. Right. Um, and I had this, like this gridded paper and I was, doing it just sort of as like research for this, the, the time book, but, um, it became impossible because for me, if I'm going for a walk, um, that's part of the writing process. Yeah. Um, or like I, I think about the book while I'm cooking, is that also right. part of the work <laughs> process? And it's like, um, and there's one reading of that that's very sad, which is like, Oh, you're always working, but there's another right. reading of it. That's more interesting, which is that, Oh, this actually complicates the notion of work and, and non-work. Um, right. And it also illuminates like a, a possibility of, of thinking about work as something meaningful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it's something that's like, that's obviously very different than, you know, someone who has a job where it's just like work, right? Like right. I want to get off work. <laughs> right. um, yeah. That's very different. Right. Yeah. And it, it speaks to, And I love that you talk about like sort of questioning the notion of progress overall. And, um, 
you know, I, I also think that we have like this really terrible myth about progress and that like progress is always good and that we should always be getting better and like creating new things and better things. And, um, but at the same time, I feel like as humans, our sort of natural state is to move and maybe like movement doesn't necessarily mean invention or like better shit. Um, but I do think like we're, <laughs> yeah, like we are sort of like moving forward and what is the best, you know, like, I don't know if it's to me, I really take pleasure, just like comfort in seeing progress as like kind of cyclical, you know, like we try to do things and get better, but then we kind of return to the same place we were and kind of see it for the first time, you know, and like we, we can just sort of go in these, in these circles and we can still feel good about making something or creating something, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to make things better or that, um, the things we already have aren't good enough. Um, totally. Yeah. yeah. There's, um, uh, at one point in the book, I mentioned this exhibition, it was like a 1983 exhibition in, oh no, no, I can't remember. It was in Europe. Um, (laughs) and, uh, um, it was, it was sort of meant to be a meditation sort of on like failed, failed utopias or like utopian mm. thinking. But the the curator of that show, um, Harold Zeman, he, uh, I, I mean, I wrote a paper about this exhibition in grad school and I remember looking through the catalog and it was clear that he had chosen um, to include in this exhibition artists living and dead who um, kind of personified this almost like monomaniacal process of making that that sort of like included the entire world like artists who Mm -hmm. just got like kind of went off the rails and um and would just had this like totalizing aesthetic vision which of course can get like you know like, I think he's also trying to draw a connection between that and, like, fascism um, right. and, like, a fascist use of art. But um, but the artists that he included were these, yeah, these kind of, like, um, he uses the words a lot, like, engine and, like, um, like uh, images of, like, electricity. Um, mm. And one of the artists in that exhibition was Kurt Schwitters, who um, would, he, he basically built, made his apartment into a sculpture um so he made it like if you see a photo it looks like a constructivist painting but it's it's just like these weird things that he built in his apartment and then and he called it mertzing um the piece was called mertzbau and this process was called mertzing and when he ran out of space in his apartment he mertzed out onto the balcony um (laughs) then that apartment burned down and so he moved somewhere else and he started mertzing there yeah. Um, then he was thrown in jail and he merged in jail. Um, and it's like, um, that's, you know, a pretty good example of most of the artists in that show, which is like, yes, they have a, a they are very goal driven. Um, yeah. and they feel, um, compelled to, to make stuff. And a lot of them were sort of like outsider artists as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly for them, it's like, not only is it not about finishing something, it's almost like they don't want to be done. Right. Um, like it'd be depressing to be done. Um, and it's really only about the process. Um, and that's, I think I really sympathize with that. Um, and I think actually a lot of the things that I describe as doing nothing are that like a lifelong practice of, of birdwatching where yes, you are learning and, um, honing your perceptual abilities, but it's all about not being done. Like that'd be the saddest day, right? It's like when you're like, well, I fully grasp 
all of bird watching and all of the birds ever. Like, uh, yep. that would be very sad. Right. It's like the sort of the difference between like hiking for pleasure and or being like, I got to like dominate all the 14ers, you know, like there's a very different, totally. it might sort of look the same from the outside. But I do think that's like, it, there's a difference between trying to dominate nature and just like living within it. Um, and I, I totally agree. Like, there's a lot of things that I do that are practices that I never feel like I'm supposed to finish. Um but also I'm not like continuing that practice or continuing to do that activity because I feel dominant over it or because I want to like own it or like be the best, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Um, so before we wrap up, I'm, I'm interested to hear if the pandemic and quarantine, uh, like if you had written this book post pandemic, would you have said anything differently or did it like change your perspective on any of this? And, and how did you sort of like, metabolize all that was going on in terms of people that were kind of forced into a position of doing nothing. Um, just like what that whole experience illuminated for you. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't think I would change very much. I actually feel like the year has been even, even for me, a kind of reiteration of the importance of things like, you know, making a, consciously trying to make space for non-productive activity. I mean, I think that's much harder now when, you know, for someone who, uh, you know, all of life happens in their apartment and on their computer, (laughs) it's like, um, this feeling that you could always be working is, is even more present than it was before. Um, and then I also have been thinking a lot about the, the parts of the book that are about attention and learning how to seek, unexpected angles on the everyday. Mm. I think that that's been really important for me anyway. I mean, I'm going on the same handful of walks over and over again and it's like an endurance exercise. Like it's like, Oh, your art is about noticing new things. Well, (laughs) here's a challenge for you. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, there's literally like, I think the epigraph to that chapter in my book is John Cage saying like, if you try something once and it's boring, try it twice if it's still boring, try it four times. Like that kind of um, mindless repetition is like very real um, this year. So um, that sort of um, tool of, of being able to try to reframe something that's supposedly the same. Cause the truth is right. Like nothing is ever the same. Like when I go on these walks, it's always going to be different than it was the day before. It's just a matter of being able to see that. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I definitely have been thinking about. Um, and then I guess I would just add on these walks, um, you know, there's a, a direction that I can walk from my apartment where it very quickly becomes very mansion-y um, and <laughs> kind of like, like embarrassing mansions, like where <laughs> like you're like stone okay, pillars. <laughs> yeah. Like you need lions. <laughs> porch okay so and I mean it's depressing right because like I remember walking up there and I um I thought I found a new park yeah and it was someone's lawn (laughs) it just really looked like a park from far away because it had like benches and stuff and you know um and so I've just I've had and it's been since March right you go on these same walks and I've really had something hammered into my brain around you know, just the sort of 
bare fact of, you know, inequality, but also like within that, like access to green space mm-hmm. um, and access to, you know, spaces that are conducive to quote unquote doing nothing. Um, you know, it's like already ac- that access was pretty, um, there's, you know, scattered. And then mm-hmm. now it's almost like, okay, well, wherever you were on that spectrum, like now you're really stuck there. Right. So like if you live in a neighborhood that's really not walkable, you're stuck in that neighborhood that's not walkable, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then if you're like me and you live in a very walkable neighborhood, you're very fortunate to be stuck in your walkable neighborhood. Right. So it's almost like, you know, everyone kind of got frozen wherever they were. And, um, and so that's something I think it, it made the link between, um, being able to just, you know, relax and have, and be in a contemplative space, um, and then actual physical space that allows you to do that. It made that link a lot clearer to me. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm very interested to see how this all pans out, um, for people in terms of like, if we couldn't opt out of all of this on our own before, like what happens when it was just sort of all taken away and we were just like sitting in our rooms trying to figure out how we like to spend our time, you know, and what we actually like to do and what brought us enjoyment. It's going to be interesting to see like how that turns out when this all is over, like whether we'll totally return to the way things were, or if at least in some small part, we'll start to like, you know, the, going out into the woods for several days and then coming back. It's like now our senses are a bit heightened and I don't know. I hope that, um, a bunch of us will really experience that and take that to heart and try to make, you know, long-term constructive changes about like how we spend our time and the way that we live our lives. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, um, there, I, I do think that you kind of like you slip back into, you know, habits, you know, over and over again, and it's an Mm -hmm. ongoing thing. But I also think that there are things that you can't unsee. Um, Like there is that category of things. And, um, and I, and I agree with you. I hope that there are are at least some things where it's like, oh, I, you know, I questioned this thing for the first time, you know, like during the pandemic, for example, like I questioned what productivity means for me or something like that. Or I questioned like, why, why do I work so hard? Um, like why actually? Um, and then that's like, that's not something that will just slip away. I think that's like a kind of fundamental shift. I mean, I hope so. Um, but I guess, I guess we'll see. Um, well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Um, it was a pleasure. And if you could tell the audience where they can where they can find you online (laughs) and learn more about you. And then, um, sorry, I also ask everyone if they could recommend a book or two to the audience that was really meaningful for them or like impactful to them in the way that they saw the world or live their life. What might that book be? Yeah. Um, okay. So I am, I am on Twitter and Instagram. I, (laughs) if I am more of a Twitter person, Mm -hmm. um, and I also will say that I, post really stupid things on Twitter. So don't, don't come to me for the hot takes. Um, <laughs> I, I did just tweet about the thing that, that, uh, removes your what's trending okay. box and said, let's get this trending. Um, so, uh, that's, Sweet. yeah, that's, and I, yeah, I also have, you know, jennyodell.com. That's like where all my art stuff is, but, yeah. um, and then a book, um, I think probably, 
one of the most important books I've ever read, um, and that actually really kind of started me in the direction of writing How to Do Nothing, um, mm. is called uh, Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. Mm. And um, I believe the subtitle is, like, I could be getting this slightly wrong, Language and Perception in a More Than Human World. Mm. Um, and Love it's a that. kind of difficult to categorize book, but it it is it lives up to the subtitle. I'll just say that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. it, and it completely... Just that and and braiding sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Yes, those, those are actually really great to read together because they really kind of move the center of gravity, yeah, out of you. And it just it's like the I mean it's gonna sound cheesy, but like the world comes alive. It does because it yeah. makes you it makes it so that you are not you know a a human living in a world of inert objects and beings. Right. Awesome. Yeah, we uh, I have a book club for my podcast, and we read. Braiding Sweetgrass is one of the books, so oh, maybe so we'll good. have to pick this other one. Yeah, it's like, I just, I yeah, like it, required reading, you know, like if I could just change yeah. <laughs> like what kids read, you know, totally, like, oh my God, totally. that would change the world. Yeah. She also has a great book about moss. I'll just say mm, that yeah. also, um, which I really enjoyed. Um, but yeah, I think if you like that, then you'll, that you'll like a uh, spell of the sensuous. Amazing. Well, thank you so much again, Jenny. This was fun. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks so much. Hello, everybody. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that episode. Uh, If you'd like to support the podcast, please head over to patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Anya Katz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. Through Patreon, if you sign up, you will get access to our private Patreon Discord server where you communicate with me and other listeners of the podcast, either generally or in a specific category like astrology, regenerative agriculture, food, sex and relationships, etc. can sign up to be a part of the last WhatsApp group chat that I'm creating, Group 5, uh, contactless stickers, playlists, workshops, so many things uh, to sign up for the Lunar Circle. It's anyakotz.com slash Lunar Circle. I'm going to play you out today with a song called Chill or Be Chilled uh, by the Polish ambassador and Nitty Scott. Because truly, if we don't chill, if we don't relax, if we don't let go, something will force us to do that, probably not in a super pleasant way. So relax into your orbit, but just don't forget to reach out and take what's yours. Until next time. Okay, I got one foot on the beach and the other in the Milky Way. Yeah, I eat the sun like a peach, but I do it in a silky way. Candy of the earth and a toe ring I do the floating, killing my soul thing My energy, awaken your energy Mind full of gold thoughts, it's full of treat Yeah, I know my father I be at ease in the muddiest waters I do not know if we close to Nirvana But mama, I still say to live if you wanna in peace Like to dance alone To the beat of the rebel revolution Cause when the heat is on and the wind is still It's all on your will, chill or be chill
I'm Lilo, baby, let's go. Say 
Ouais, ouais. <rire>